worship team is just buzzing today, hey? That was awesome. It's all good. It's all good. Whoop. All right. Let's see if I can keep my place. We're going to have a lot of fun this morning. We are going to dismiss the kids to Children's Church. So Cooper and Jesse, you get going and you take your friends and off to Children's Church you go. Have fun. Thank you to Ryan and all the different leaders that lead Children's Church so the kids can have that to enjoy. Well, Daddy does the talking part of church. We're in John this morning. We are in chapter 7. And as we go into the second half of chapter 7 and read it together this morning, church, we're talking about the greatest exchange. Something is happening as Jesus is explaining his divinity and his identity as Messiah to the people. They are being challenged to make the greatest exchange of their lives. This is the origin story of humanity all the way back to Genesis. You were the only king forever. Almighty God will lift you higher, the only king forever, except in the third chapter of Genesis where we had the choice to pick who is going to be the only king forever. Is it going to be him or is it going to be us? He offers us life, and the deceiver whispers to us, surely, surely you won't die if you seize this for yourself. What's God holding back from you? This tree possesses the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. So is what God is offering to you good? Or are you going to notice and experience after you seize the fruit something that God was withholding? Who is the king forever? Because if God's the king, then we obey him and we avoid this fruit. But if we choose to become king, then we pursue it. Who is the king forever? And since that third chapter, when we relied to and believed that lie and seized it, Adam, Adam whose name in Hebrew means humanity, all of us, when we chose to walk away from God and make ourselves king forever, The rest of scripture records God's plan to win us back to him as king forever. And you're going to see that in John chapter 7, that Jesus is at the feast of tabernacles. And as they gather for seven days and live in these tents on the roofs of their houses and out in their courtyards, as they gather to remember that God took them through the wilderness and tabernacled in their midst, that God took on a temporary dwelling The king came down to his people and made his throne in the center of their camp. That God has sent his next tabernacle, his one and only son, to Emmanuel with the people, to be God with us with the people. And he's going to extend to us this invitation one more time. And what is this invitation? It's life. Will you choose it or not? He extends to us life and we get to pick. And what does the deceiver whisper? What do the Pharisees, what do the chief priests whisper to the people? Is he really telling the truth? Could he really be the one? But he doesn't fit our criteria. He doesn't fit our expectations. Could he really be the only king forever? Really, the only king could be you. Power and control and authority. The people notice. The people notice the righteousness that is being lived out by the Pharisees and the chief priests. And they're going to have to lay that down to follow the only king. 
Will they choose to? I just want to bring that context back into this story as we begin to read it. Because as Jesus offers them life, you have to understand, because you're going to criticize them right away. And say, why didn't they all just believe? Why didn't they all just accept his gift of life and follow him? Why? Because it was going to be the greatest exchange they would ever have to make. They would have to give up their very own lives. We'll get to the cross in a few minutes. This is John chapter 7. We're at verse 25. We're in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. We're not at the end of the feast yet. That'll come in a few verses. Remember, Jesus came here, but not with his brothers. His brothers wanted him to come and gain popularity and a following, and Jesus chose not to. He came later, quietly, and he's been teaching now in the midst of the feast to the people, revealing who he is. Let's read verse 25 together. If you brought your Bibles, follow along. I've put the scripture on the screen. You forgot your Bible, but next week you can bring your Bible. We'll still be in John. Here we go. This is the holy scripture that John recorded for us. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask this question. Isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? Here he is. He's speaking publicly. And they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Messiah? We know where the man's from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. This brings us to the first thing we should pay attention to as we read this, is that Jesus didn't meet their expectations. He didn't. You'll notice reading this story, and of course, right, the other stories that we've seen so far in the Gospel of John, whether it's chapter 2 in the tipping of the tables, chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. They expected someone to overthrow Rome. They expected a political leader who would come to gain a following. They expected a Messiah with an unknown origin. They expected a Messiah to be born of the line of David, though, to have roots back to Bethlehem, to the royal line of the king so that he could say to the people, my authority has been granted to me by my lineage. And with that lineage, he would have the authority to speak to the people and they would have to listen because he follows in the footsteps of the kings. They have these expectations on Jesus. They also expected him to establish a kingdom that would not end. That if God was to keep his Old Testament scriptures, what he had spoken that the Messiah's kingdom, his reign, would not be overthrown by another ruler. And all of these things Jesus is going to complicate by revealing to the people he's not what they expected. This is the first one. How could he really be that king if we know where he's from? But the Pharisees aren't coming after him. The chief priests aren't coming after him. If he was standing in the midst of the festival and declaring, I am God, I am him, I am all of these things, wouldn't the Pharisees notice? Wouldn't they come? Right? Wouldn't they handcuff him and drag him off and beat him in jail? But they're not. They're just allowing him to teach. Maybe he is. Maybe he's the king, but it doesn't make sense. Verse 28, the next scripture says, Then Jesus, who is still teaching in the temple courts, he cries out, Yes, you know me. You know where I'm from. I'm not here in my own authority. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him. 
because I'm from him and he sent me. This is a direct challenge to the last question we just had. He says, yes, yes, you know my origin, but you do not know my origin. You can tell by my accent that I'm Galilean, but you don't know where I'm from. You may even know by the friends that follow me that I'm from Nazareth, that I'm from the lake, from the lake country, I'm from the north, and I don't sound like the people from the south. You can tell, but yet you do not know where I'm from. The one who sent me, the father who sent me, he's true, and yet you don't know him yet. Your expectations on me aren't fair because you know my origin, and yet my origin's a mystery to you, but he's about to reveal it to them. Sometimes we place expectations on God that just aren't realistic because we're not thinking about him correctly. Here's where they try to seize him. Pay attention to this. Verse 30 says that this, they try to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him, and this is what they said. When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Why couldn't they seize him? There's obviously people in the crowd that are believing Jesus is who he says he is. They're looking at Jesus and saying, if Jesus isn't the one, how on earth will the next one present himself? Could he possibly do more signs than Jesus? They're believing Jesus must be it because what could we expect from the Messiah that would be greater than what Jesus has done? And yet the people that want to seize him aren't able to. Here's probably the two reasons why. These are a little bit of an assumption, but you tell me whether you think we're going down the right path. The first is probably this. There's probably hundreds, if not thousands, of people worshiping at the temple. Many are choosing to believe, based on the verse that we just read. So those in the crowd who are doubting Jesus, who think that he's a false teacher, that he's teaching a false gospel, they want to seize him. But if there's truly hundreds of people who are believing in him, who think he might be the long-awaited king who's been prophesied about for half a millennium, do you think they're going to let other people arrest him and beat him? There has to be this tension in the crowd. They think he's the long-awaited king. So how do you just walk up to him and put him in chains? What are the people going to do? The second is this. His hour had not yet come. Something spiritual is going on. You remember chapter 2 when his mother asked him to change the water into wine? And what was Jesus' response to his mom? Jesus, can you do this? And he says, what? My hour's not yet come. It's not my time yet. His brothers, earlier in chapter 7, if you remember last week, they asked him to come to the festival and teach the crowds, to reveal himself to the crowds. What did Jesus say to his brothers? My time has not yet come. And what time are they talking about? The time of his glorification. The time where he will glorify the Father through himself. When's that going to happen? When is the whole world going to see who he is on display for all of them? When's that going to happen? When's it going to happen? Everyone's quiet this morning. Don't want to get the answer out. That's when it's going to happen. But that doesn't happen for six more months, roughly. Because the Feast of Tabernacles is in the fall, and he's going to die at which feast? 
Passover, that's in the springtime. His time had not yet come. So the time that they would seize him, the time that he would humble himself to giving himself up to being beaten and killed by the people, that time had not yet come. So God is supernaturally intervening in the events of this feast. Yeah, God's active in this. It's not the time yet. It will come. But it's not that time yet. It just it adds a little more context to this as we're reading through and thinking, is God supernaturally stopping people from grabbing Jesus? Yes. There's something going on that's not that moment yet. It will come. Verse 32 is the... Hmm, how to describe this? This is the moment when the Pharisees take their first steps to intervene in what Jesus is doing. Up to this point, they've not interfered in any way. But verse 32 says, The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and Pharisees sent temple guards to go arrest him. They sent the police to go get Jesus. And they heard what the people were whispering. Why were the crowds whispering? Remember, it's in the first half of chapter 7. Why are the crowds all whispering what they believe? It's out of fear. It said that they were afraid, so they didn't want to be heard. If people were to make clear their allegiance to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the chief priests were to declare that Jesus is not Messiah, it could cost them everything. They'd be believing in a false teacher. Everyone is afraid. Why are we making decisions out of fear? Who are we afraid of? Why are they afraid? Why does fear affect us the way that it does? The whole crowd whispering what they believe. But the Pharisees hear this and they interject by sending their guards. Let's see how the guards interact with Jesus. We're going to see that in just a few verses. This is Jesus' response as he continues to teach in verse 33. Jesus says to the people, I am with you for only a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Declaring to the people that I'm about to leave. I'm establishing a kingdom and it's just about ready. And then I'm gone. You'd think Jesus, who's just establishing, right, this relationship, this rapport with the people, they're starting to trust him and follow him. And he, again, is going to give them an expectation that just doesn't sit well with anything they believe. If their thinking is that he's going to stay in the capital, in the city, establish a political kingdom that drives the Romans out and establishes freedom for the Jews over this empire that's invaded their land, and this king isn't going anywhere. So as Jesus has all their attention, has them all captivated, he says to them, I'm here for a little bit longer, about half a year to be exact, and then I'm out of here. You guys will be on your own. You won't be able to find me. You won't see me. You can't come where I'm going. So what are the people going to start to think? They're going to think that Jesus is moving away. Where is he going? Why couldn't we follow him? Where would he go? 
the Jews said to one another in verse 35, where does he intend to go that we can't find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks? Will he teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you'll look for me, but you won't find me and where I am, you can't come? What does he mean? Is he going to find Jewish people and unite the nation by going out into the Greek territories to find them? Is the king going out to establish his kingdom out there? Why wouldn't he do it here? It doesn't make sense. But it will make sense in just a few minutes. Verse 37 now is a jump ahead in time to the last and greatest day of the festival. Okay, time for context. As I'm reading through the commentaries, I'm trying to imagine what this feast looks like. And the commentaries talk about the priest going down to the pool, right? We talked about this last week. The one that had living water in it. Most likely the pool of Siloam that was fed by an underground spring. And the priest is taking his big golden water jar, probably a holy clean object, right? And would go down to the water and would fill it up and would take it back to the altar at the temple and would pour out a drink offering to the Lord, thanking him for this water that he gave them for the harvest because this is their Thanksgiving celebration. And you do that every single day, just like they would light the lamps. It was this daily ritual along with other sacrifices that it talks about in the Old Testament. But on the last and the greatest day, similar to other themes throughout the Bible, everything is amplified on the last day. You walk around Jericho one time every day until the very last time. Then how many times do you walk around Jericho? Seven. Like they have this habit of at the end, you symbolize everything by repeating it one last time. And the commentaries say historically, this would often happen that the priest would go down to the pool now seven times on the last day, one for every day that they celebrated, and bring this water back and pour it out. Saying, God, thank you for your living water. Thank you for providing life for us. And pour out this water. Now this whole festival, right, is, sac- I was going to say sacrificial, it's symbolic of the travel across the wilderness. So they remember the time when God took a rock and out of this dead rock drew living water, water that was flowing. So God has done this before. He has brought life out of death. God has led his people before using a pillar of fire. He has been their light to guide the way. So during this feast, it makes sense that they're pouring out the water and thanking God for how he provides living water, lighting the large torches, lighting the pillars of fire to illuminate the city. They're remembering what he did. It's kind of symbolic for our lives when you think about it. Any of us who've chosen to believe in Jesus have been set free from our slavery, yet we're not in heaven yet. We're wandering. We're wandering through the broken world, the wilderness, relying on God to give us our life to guide the way as we go home. We're in the midst of the wilderness and God is tabernacling inside of us by his Holy Spirit. We're in the midst of this. So you imagine on this last and greatest days, the priest is pouring out this water, maybe hour by hour, thanking God for how he's given them life. Verse 37 says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. 
What do you mean by this? He meant the Spirit, right? But the Spirit hadn't come yet. It'd be to those who'd believe in him and they'd later receive. The Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Spirit was coming. Would come once Jesus died and rose again. As all the people are celebrating this water being poured out, he's declaring to the people, I am the water. I'm the giver of this life. You stand here and you sing your songs and you praise the Father for this life that he's given you. That's me. I'm here to do that. That's my role. I am life. What did he declare in chapter 6 when he multiplied the bread for 5,000 people? He said to them later, I am the bread of Life. What did he say in chapter 4 when he met the Samaritan woman at the well? He said, I offered you water that is living. It's going to spring up to eternal life. What did Jesus offer to Nicodemus in chapter 3? That people would believe in him, they'd be born again to new life. It's what he's been offering from the very beginning. And John, who is writing this decades later, Right, Jesus is gone, he's in heaven. Most of the disciples at this point may have passed away already. And John is putting these words down to share them with the people that believe and the people that don't yet believe. And he wants them to remember more than anything is that Jesus offers life to people. He is picking the stories from Jesus' ministry that all point to life and he's lining them up one by one. He's not manipulating the story by leaving out certain miracles. He's picking the ones that magnify life. And he's putting them back to back to back to back to back so that you don't miss it. Because if you miss the life that he offers, you miss all of it. That's what Jesus is offering to the people. It's life. But what will the people choose? Will they choose to trust the God that gives them life or will they take the fruit, make themselves king forever? It's really tied into this. Verse 40 describes the crowd's response. Let's take a look at those verses. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. So that's the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy a prophet that would be from within God's own people that would be greater than Moses. Verse 41, others said, he is the Messiah. So that's the king. Still others asked this, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants, from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, no one laid a hand on him. The crowd is confused. They're caught. His words sound true. His teaching sounds right, but his lineage doesn't match. Why? Because they're judging by the outside appearance. This is verse 24. We read this last week. Jesus said to them, don't judge by external appearance. Because on the outside, Jesus looks like a Galilean. He sounds like a Galilean. And the scripture said that their king would come from David's people. From Bethlehem. From the south. But Jesus looks like a northerner. It doesn't make sense. What don't they don't understand? They don't understand that Jesus was born at Bethlehem. They don't understand that his father Joseph 
was a descendant of the great King David. They're judging by the outside appearance. They're not investigating it thoroughly. They're judging too quickly. And the crowd is split. As we go into the last few verses of chapter 7, we finally get to see what the temple guards encountered and what the Pharisees had to say. This is where things get a little rocky. The scripture says this, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests, back to the Pharisees, so this could be a day or two later, and the Pharisees asked the guards, Why didn't you bring him in? And this is their response. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law? There's a curse on them. What a cruel, cruel thing to say. Think about it. These guards who maybe have arrested false teachers in the past, who work directly for the teachers of the law, the people who've dedicated their lives to the study and memorization of God's word, they work for them. And these teachers say, go get him, he's a liar. And the guards go down and they encounter Jesus and they come back and just go, something's up. There's something about him. There's something about his words. No one's ever spoken like this before. We've arrested false teachers. We've arrested liars. We've arrested blasphemers. Something, though. This guy's different. You have to hear him. And what does the Pharisee do to the guards? Right? Are you idiots? Are you stupid? This crowd of people, they don't know the law. They believe in him. They don't know this. He's spoken to them with smooth words, right? He's cursed them. They're under his curse. We, though, look at us. We're educated. We know these things. Have any of us chosen to believe in him? Look at us. Look at me, like he's talking to the guards, right? Look at me as I'm talking to you. Have any of us chosen to believe in him? Any of us? Have any of us gone to Jesus in the middle of the night? Hmm? Have any of us snuck off to go meet him? To listen to him? To ask him questions? Any of us? Of course not. Of course not. None of us would do something like that. And then you look at verse 50. How does verse 50 start? The very next slide. Nicodemus. See, what he doesn't understand is that one in their crowd had been to Jesus. People from within their own midst were starting to wonder, could this be him? And Nicodemus, when he goes to meet with Jesus, says that some of them were starting to believe. Nicodemus is a teacher of teachers. He's a Sanhedrin member. He's not just a regular person in the synagogue. When he speaks, people close their mouths and they listen. This is a man of importance, Nicodemus. And as he stands there, listening to this Pharisee belittle these guards and tear them down, Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier, who was one of their own number, 
he asks this question. He says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they snap back at Nicodemus. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You'll find a prophet doesn't come from Galilee. They treat him like he's stupid. Nicodemus, who spent his life memorizing the scripture, they treat him like he's stupid. And say to him, don't you even know God's word? He'll come from the south. He's not going to come from the north. Don't you even know? It's like saying to the pastor, haven't you ever read a Bible before? It's just like, whap. Nicodemus pointed out a fatal flaw, that the teachers of the law weren't even following their own law. What are they about to kill Jesus for? For not following the law. That's what they argued in the beginning of chapter 7. That in chapter 5, he went to the pool on the Sabbath and gave someone back their life. And they say, you can't do that. You're a lawbreaker. You can't be the Messiah if you're a lawbreaker. And they're going to kill him for that. And Nicodemus says, you're not even following your own law. You have to investigate him first. Look into it. Go talk to this guy. Meet him. And the other guys say, no, we're going to judge by external appearance, outside appearance. He looks like he's from the north. He obviously can't be the king. Let's just arrest him and get it done with. Why? Because they don't want to give up the power and control and the influence that they have as teachers of the law. They've chosen to take the fruit off the tree. They have no desire to die to themselves to follow this man. They're going to try to kill him for breaking the Sabbath when Jesus was trying to teach them that the Sabbath is supposed to give life back to the people. And Jesus gave this paralyzed man back his life on the Sabbath. It was the great display of what the Sabbath is for. Who do you think encountered Sabbath more truly than the man who got his life back on Sabbath? Do you think that was a God-honoring experience for that gentleman? (laughs) Yes. God in him had an encounter in a way he'll never forget on the Sabbath. Yet the Pharisees just look at that and they think that Jesus has no respect for Moses' law. told you we'd come back to the cross. I was trying to think this week as I read this passage over and over and over again and I was thinking about me and I was thinking about you. Not the Miller students, I hadn't met any of you yet, but I was thinking about all the people sitting behind you. (laughs) What does this mean to them? Like if I'm going to stand up here and read you facts out of a commentary about John 7, I don't know. You can sit at home and Google that. What does this mean for you? Well, I think the great exchange is what, it, what it, it means to us because you and I battle this every day. Like you and I every day are asked this question. Will you die to yourself, pick up your cross and walk? Every day you're tempted with the fruit in the Garden of Eden, symbolically. Will you choose to find life in him or will you look for life in something else? And the deceiver whispers, Look for life in your family. Look for life in your work. Look for life in your hobbies. Look for life in your pleasures. Look for life somewhere else. You're single, you have to find somebody. They're going to give you life. You're not married yet, you have to get married. It's going to give you life. 
Unemployed? Just find that job you want. It'll give you life. You don't have enough money yet to retire? Just save up enough. It'll give you life. Just buy that next thing. You know, expand your business. Build the farm. Retire to town. Whatever it is, it'll give you life. Just look for life in it. And the deceiver whispers and whispers and whispers. Don't pick up your cross. Don't deny yourself. Live for yourself. Live for yourself. Go on Amazon one more time. Buy something you don't need. Live for yourself. Doesn't it feel good? Just buy another thing. Don't trust that God's going to provide this joy for you. Look for it in something else. Make yourself so busy with your family and with your life that you don't have a moment for God. That'll make you happy. You're a good dad. You're a good mom. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be so busy that you have no time for God. And you just hear these voices every day. And you have to choose. And Jesus says, I'm here offering you life. I have this spirit that will tabernacle within you. I'm going to be glorified by placing my presence inside of you as you travel, as you travel from salvation to heaven through this wilderness that you're living in. Will you choose to follow the light that I give? Will you choose to drink the water that I offer? Or are you going to go to creation to find life when you're supposed to find it in the creator? And that lie is whispered to you and me every single day. Every day it's whispered to us. Every choice that we make. There's this little bit of brokenness inside of us. Just take some extra time off at work. No one will notice. Just take shortcuts. Just do things a little cheaper. Give a little bit less of your time. Give a little bit less of your money. Give a little bit less of your energy. You don't really have to read your Bible that often. God will love you regardless. It's okay that you don't have time to pray. It's okay that you don't meet with other people in the church and build into them. As long as you go to Sunday morning and listen to the guy talk, it's all fine. It's all fine. You and I are this crowd. You and I are these guards. We're in the midst of this. And we're hearing these opposing voices. And we have this king offering us everything. And the question is, will we buy into the lie or not? In John 8, he's going to explain to the people that he's the light of this world and we need to follow him. He's going to guide us. And they're going to say, what gives you the authority to claim to be this God that you claim to be? That's who I am. Before Abraham even was, I am Yahweh. You need to know who I am. He's going to heal the man who's blind in chapter 9, showing that he can restore sight back to a people who are blind. Who's blind? All of us are blind. And he's going to give us this ability to see again, to see clearly who he is. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Open your eyes and see who I am. Follow me instead of following yourself. And on the greatest display of his power, he's going to go to Lazarus and revive him from the grave. You don't believe that I am who I claim to be? Jesus puts everything on the line, knowing he'll get arrested, knowing that he'll get killed. There's no escape from this. And yet he goes to Lazarus' grave and demonstrates No one on this earth holds life, death, and resurrection in their hand like I do. The question is, will we choose to obey him, listen to him, 
And ultimately, will we die for him? Will you and I make that choice, die to ourselves and follow him? I said earlier that in the book of Acts, don't worry, we're just about done. In the book of Acts, the church really had a few simple functions, and they did that very well. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, and they broke bread and they prayed all the time. People were drawn to this. People were added to their church daily. People wanted this. They worshiped God, devoted their lives to each other, and constantly studied the word and grew in their knowledge and faith in God. We, though, as a church, can become guilty of not doing all three. And you see how we come off the rails when we do that? We love studying God's word. We love singing on Sunday. Boy, I'm not going to devote myself to the people, though. Or I love the people in church. I devote myself to them all the time. And I love the worship. I love the service. But the study of this? No thanks. Like, we just have this tendency of not grasping the importance of all of them. And yet, when the church chooses to grasp all of them, it changes the church. That's where I think, especially after the last two years of struggle and hardship, especially in our church, it's time to have clear focus. What are we doing? What are we here to achieve? What are we missing? If we're truly going to die to ourselves, then everything that falls outside of those three, we have to hold them very lightly and ask ourselves, is that the thing we're dying for? Have I elevated something beyond Jesus and I'm worshiping it rather than him? Does it need to fall? What does Jesus want from me? He's calling you to make this great exchange and yet you won't devote yourself to his word or to worship or to the church. Then you're missing the exchange. You've been called to give something that is of lesser value up to gain something of far greater value. And people are going to doubt you and people are going to say things about you, judging by external appearances, and you might be the Nicodemus. But it's worth being the Nicodemus. It's worth taking that step forward and saying, even though no one else here is willing to follow, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. We're going to meet Nicodemus one more time in the Gospel of John. It won't be for a few chapters yet, but we're going to meet him one more time. Do you remember? We've talked about this before. Do you remember where we're going to meet him? At the burial of Jesus. When him and Joseph of Arimathea go to bury the body of the king, Nicodemus shows up. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. The worship team is going to come on up and they're going to lead us in one more song. It's Be Thou My Vision. It's beautiful. Lord of my heart. Who's the Lord of your heart?
that that is the prayer for all of us as we leave the church today. Lord, would you dismiss us with your blessing and would we go out and shine for you in the brightest way possible. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Hope to see you all next week.